This is a Giving Thought podcast from the Charities Aid Foundation's think tank, Giving Thought. Hi there, you're listening to the Giving Thought podcast, a podcast from CAF's think tank Giving Thought, where we talk about the issues of the day uh, through the lens of philanthropy and the world of charities. Uh, You're here with your hosts, Rod and Adam. Uh, This is episode four of Giving Thought, in which we're going to be talking about democracy and power. Um, So, Adam, yeah, this is obviously kind of one of those issues that we could have picked pretty much any week to talk about, because it's a theme that's been running through philanthropy for or since the year dot. But um, there were a couple of things that kind of made us think now was a good time to talk about it. Um, One of them, uh, from my point of view, was just the fact that Mark Zuckerberg has been quite heavily back in the news. Um, He doesn't tend to go very far from it most of the time, but he uh, has been doing what a lot of people see as a kind of precursor tour to a presidential run in in 2020, uh, going and doing kind of lectures and talking on campuses about uh quite big issues to do with society and facebook's role in them um and this is kind of interesting not just in itself because it kind of brings back to the front of mind all the questions that were raised um about a year or maybe 18 months ago when uh he and his wife priscilla chan announced that they were giving a very very large amount of money to uh to charity like 45 billion uh dollars or at least they were pledging it um but then it turned out what they were doing wasn't giving it in a traditional sense. They were setting up a new initiative that wasn't actually a non-profit, but was a philanthropic vehicle. And this raised all kinds of questions in people's minds uh, about the way in which they were doing this, but also those kind of deeper questions about the role of wealth when it comes to setting the agenda for um, uh, public policy and addressing social issues um, and kind of whether the the outsized role of philanthropy by those who've got a lot of money kind of has a corrosive effect on on democracy. Yeah, it's a complicated issue, isn't it? Um, it's no surprise that it's come up now, though presumably a billionaire business mogul is never going to be president. That wouldn't happen, would it? <laughs> That's just ridiculous, yeah. No, it is it is interesting. As you say, it's kind of come up now, but um, it's it's definitely the the question mark over the role of philanthropy in in society and democracy is very very far um from a new one i'm just going to uh shamelessly quote from uh, a, a source in in my own book <laughs> about the history of philanthropy um but no less an authority than george washington actually uh un, you know quite a long time ago uh, was quoted as saying uh making a warning about philanthropy uh, in his uh, at the speech, I think when he was leaving office, and he said that he warned that uh, philanthropic organisations would, over the course of time, become potent engines by which cunning, ambitious, and unprincipled men will be able to subvert the power of the people and to usurp for themselves the reins of government, destroying afterwards the very engines which have lifted them to unjust domination. Which is a lovely turn of phrase, but it mm. kind of shows that concerns about private wealth in the public sphere have, have been around for for a very long time. Um, and so I think, you know, what we're doing in this first section is basically making the case for why that is uh, concerning. And it's it's not really that complicated, isn't it? I mean, it's kind of yeah. people who have a lot of money but haven't been democratically elected. If they use that money 
even with the best of motives, to try and drive social change, influence the course of public policy, change public opinion, there is a question mark about whether that is a healthy thing because they aren't accountable to anyone. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, I just one of the really important things there is that it it's not about whether or not you agree with a particular philanthropist and their position on the political spectrum, is it? I mean, that because that's a kind of separate thing and I think always clouds this issue. No, but it's very, very difficult to have this conversation without that being the inevitable outcome. You know, whether whether you're very critical of the 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 political agenda of the Koch brothers or George Soros, you're going to fall on those kinds of arguments. And the actually the core argument of whether whether philanthropists are offered too much power and agency through their wealth or not is not really addressed. And I think on one level, uh, you kind of have to concede uh, one basic point, which is that through philanthropy, if you've got a lot of money, you are offered increased agency. You are able to have uh, influence on the world and in many countries get kind of favourable tax treatment for doing it. Uh, actually have a kind of uh, a marginally lower cost of giving than uh, poorer people because you're paying more tax, you're in higher tax rates. So that there is a question about uh, philanthropic power um, that's rarely addressed. Now, whether that's a problem that's solvable or not and whether we ought to solve it and whether the, the, kinds of, the kind of whether we lose more than we gain by doing so is is kind of the question that uh, we want to try and address here, I think. Yeah, and I think it is, you're right there just to quickly to raise the, the question of tax because in a way that that to me is the kind of the crux of this because if if you these donors weren't getting tax breaks for their philanthropy, I mean, you can have concerns about the level of impact that they have, but essentially, you know, it, they're kind of free to do whatever they want with their own money. Yeah. But where it becomes much more obvious why there is a public interest in questioning these things is because their giving is being subsidized in one sense or another by money from all of the rest of us through taxation. So we do have a right to question what it is we're funding and what impact that's having on our democracy. So at the, at the risk of getting into a, a subject I'm quite happy to talk about at length, Rod, which is uh, <laughs> <laughs> taxation uh, and philanthropy and how they come together. Yeah. Um, I think it's worth saying that we are going to come back to that subject and try yeah. and present it in a way which is not absolutely tedious. Um, no, which is, uh, yeah, sounds like a challenge. <laughs> and although, you know, to some people it might sound more like a threat than a promise, but we are <laughs> going to do that. So. But, uh, but for now, I think we're going to uh, move on to the next section where we're going to actually try and form, uh, try and mount some kind of uh, uh, cogent defence of, uh, of why this might not be such an issue as, as it first appears. Okay, then, yeah, as, uh, as Adam says just before the break, um, our challenge in this next section is to take that charge that philanthropy is kind of inherently anti-democratic and kind of turn it on its head and say, well, actually, perhaps that's a good thing and might even be one of the big strengths of, of philanthropy. Um, I mean, I might just kick off, I think there's a couple of things we're going to pick up on here. I might kick off by taking what is maybe one of the more banal defences, which is essentially that we don't really need to care 
not mm. not in an ideological way, but just pragmatically. You know, some people would say, well, actually, if you just opened this stuff up sufficiently, so that there was a kind of plurality of it, even if there was a a plutocratic bias, i.e., you know, those with a lot of money have an undue influence, there'd still be a plurality of plutocrats, uh, and so their views and their kind of position on the political spectrum would even out. Um, and this is an argument that has been made in the U.S. around kind of philanthropic funding of politics. You know, as long as there's yeah. enough Republican donors and Democrat donors to balance each other out, well, it's kind of fine. Um, I'm not sure whether I think we should be sanguine about that. <laughs> and also, I think the the kind of the knockdown argument against that is that there is hard and fast evidence that wealthy people have views that are significantly more on the conservative end of the spectrum than the than the liberal or progressive one. Yeah. So in practice, I don't think it really works. So try another one, Adam. Okay, well, I I think this one is it's sort of slightly cynical, which w- won't surprise you a great deal, but uh, actually quite effective, I think, uh, which is to say that actually those who criticise the power offered to wealthy philanthropists uh, as being completely unfair and inequitous uh, and and kind of skewing democracy are actually criticising the wrong thing. There's nothing wrong uh, with uh, the, the kind of rules that govern philanthropy. At their core, as you say, it's plural. And as long as people are allowed to pursue uh, whatever causes uh, within the law they're interested in, there's nothing unfair about that. The thing that's unfair is society. So if your issue is that uh, a few billionaires are able to have undue influence because of philanthropy, it's not because of philanthropy, it's because of the economy. And so there's a way of tackling that, and I guess that's at the ballot box. Um, So this is to say that, and and here's the kind of second point of this argument, which, which I think is probably the most significant bit, which is that were you to try and address the symptoms of inequality in the economy by seeking to restrict philanthropic power, what you might end up doing is damaging the concept of philanthropy, the concept that individuals or groups of individuals can come together and try to elicit change outside of the tyranny of the electoral process that kind of, that favours kind of broad majorities but kind of isn't able to see uh, minority concerns. If you damage that concept, uh, you damage democracy. You damage the kind of second wing of democracy, which allows uh, kind of vulnerable groups to be represented rather than crushed by a, a, a majority. Um, so, yeah, the overview of the argument would be to say that many uh, many of the criticisms labelled at, at kind of the power of philanthropy are actually about inequality uh, and not philanthropy. If you try and address the symptoms of inequality by... Uh, curtailing philanthropy you might actually damage democracy yeah and i i agree and i think um you know a, a slightly tweaked version of that is to my mind the the kind of the strongest argument in favor of this which is essentially that you know arguing that philanthropy is anti-democratic is fine but to think that that's an, a knockdown criticism assumes that you think that the current form of democracy we have in any one country is absolutely perfect whereas you know this, the situation right now in the us is interesting where a lot of foundations upon the election of Donald Trump have basically started to position themselves as kind of 
anti-democratic in the sense of guarding what they think are the the values that need to be held um you know in reserve for when uh, you know a time when politics has got back to normal comes around again mm. um and this is this is sort of a role that i think philanthropy has has always played which is you know it can run counter to the grain of the political climate and public opinion at the time and that is profoundly anti-democratic but quite often with the benefit of hindsight it finds itself on the right side of history so you know just a couple of examples would be the decriminalization of homosexuality in the uk well you know that was not a mainstream issue and public opinion was not in favor of it and it took a very very long period of time in which philanthropic support for gay rights um you know and kind of public protest around those and legislative work and all that sort of thing happened and then in the end you had a conservative government making gay marriage legal in this country which is something that would have been incredibly surprising 20 or 30 years before that um and probably the starkest example and one i always like to bring up um and without going into too much detail was uh, a philanthropist called julius rosenwald who was the ceo of sears in the u.s in the early 20th century uh, a jewish philanthropist um in chicago but he ended up funding huge amounts of um he built schools for black people in the the Jim Crow era in the Deep South, um, which obviously ran counter to the kind of segregationist laws that were in place at the yeah. time. Uh, and even though public opinion was very much split about that, the law was very clear. Yet he used his philanthropy to sort of run directly counter to that as far as he could. And whilst that was, in a sense, anti-democratic, I think it's very hard for for most people to judge him with a historical view any way other than very positively. Um, so I think it's kind of, you know, the importance of philanthropy in playing that role uh, as kind of, as you say, the sort of the second tier of democracy apart from electoral politics is absolutely crucial. So I think we've uh, successfully muddied the waters uh, yep. of this issue. In the final section, we'll look at this from a kind of international perspective uh, and, and I guess, make the point that actually philanthropy is both pro and anti-democratic. Okay, uh, third section. I think, Adam, you're going to take it from here because this is international and therefore essentially your domain. So go for it. Yeah, my, my domain is everywhere. Um, yeah, that's it. The world. I suppose the story may as well uh, start from the end of the Cold War, where after the Iron Curtain fell, you saw a huge upswing in funding, particularly from the US, but also from the EU, particularly from uh, the State Department in the US, but also a lot from private philanthropy, um, going to fund civil society development in Eastern Europe and, and Russia. Um, now this was across the board. It was funding of infra- infrastructure organisations that provide uh, support for for donors and for charities. It was for the government itself to you know technical assistance uh, to to uh, ensure that the kind of regulatory environment was fit for purpose. And it was for causes. It was for causes that advanced democracy and helped to engage citizens. It was for charities that do those kinds of jobs. Um, now that was reasonably successful. And now in many of these countries, you see you're quite an established civil society, but it also resulted in some, uh, some kind of 
counter narratives. So, you know, the basic narrative that many in the West would look at is of uh, the large-scale funding of work to try and advance democracy and in- encourage engagement. The other narrative, one uh, that was has become particularly prevalent recently, has been to see this as the kind of foreign meddling in government, but also foreign meddling in democracy. Um, so, you know, the funding of, uh, uh, of institutions that, uh, that kind of advance the soft power of Western nations uh, is seen as kind of uh, being a uh, guarded way of, uh, of trying to influence elections. Now, in the uh, era of the colour revolutions in Eastern Europe, uh, this became something that Vladimir Putin, looking looking over his kind of the domain he would like to influence, um, absolutely saw the power of this uh, influence uh, through Western philanthropy uh, on civil society, and never more so than the Orange Revolution, um, where Putin essentially saw the power of civil society and sought to try and uh to try and restrict it in his own country and we've since seen uh the legal environment in russia change pretty radically with a a foreign agents law uh and a law on undesirable organizations that intends to uh to try and limit the power of of that kind of western philanthropy uh roll on a few years and you have the arab spring and the same kind of conclusions being drawn by many governments, although we've, we've kind of made the point that that's the wrong conclusion, obviously. Mm. But uh, a, a number of governments reacted to the Arab Spring by trying to kind of restrict foreign uh, monies uh, needed, uh, kind of used to uh, develop civil society. Uh, and then more recently than this, you've seen you know a leaked document in China, document number nine that I think we've covered on this podcast before, where the government essentially told uh, party members that civil society was a sort of foreign construct to try and undermine uh, Chinese government. All of these things go together to say that 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 it is possible to see this from a very different point of view and a much more negative one, which is that the the philanthropic funding of of civil society offers great power such power that it can essentially undermine government and be completely anti-democratic um but at the same time the work is literally funding democracy development so it can be seen as very heavily pro or anti-democratic depending on your perspective yeah, I think that's right, and I suppose it raises uh, very sharply that that distinction in between the the question of kind of the the democratic structure of uh, a particular country itself, and maybe the ideal of democracy that people are using philanthropy to to address. And sometimes, you know, in the UK or the US, it's kind of, we might find it confusing because we assume that they're supposed to be the same thing so when when we find them um you know antagonizing one another it's hard to kind of disentangle which one's in the right and which one's in the wrong whereas if it is the kind of the ideology of a particular country or you know kind of the the western bloc putting forward its view of what democracy is against you know that which is being followed in another country well it, it becomes a much clearer kind of ideological battle uh, even though both sides essentially are saying that what they're doing is is in the right when it you know with respect to, to democracy 
the issues uh, and examples you're raising there, if you flip them on their head and imagine yeah. that those countries were doing the same in the UK or US, how we would feel about that. Exactly. Because it's very difficult to promote democracy without also promoting the a particular agenda within that democracy. You know, a lot of the uh, the kind of democracy uh, support, the kind of democracy supporting civil society work that has been funded in Eastern Europe, for example, also has a particular view uh, about legal structures within those countries. It has a particular view about representation, uh, possibly about human rights, uh, and that's seen as being incredibly political, uh, not just advocating for for kind of democracy. Uh, and as you say, if you if you turn that on its head and imagine um, a another country funding democracy development work in the UK or the US, uh, it's hard it's hard to see that that wouldn't be seen as being more than just about the advancement of democracy would probably be seen as being as having a kind of a political agenda uh, on top of that yeah absolutely and it's you know you mentioned the arab spring there and that's the kind of the, the obvious case in point isn't it where the the promotion of democracy was seen as the desirable end result and that kind of happened and everybody was you know celebrating the the role of technology and everything and enabling this to happen and then the aftermath was people realizing that the parties and individuals that were democratically elected weren't necessarily the ones that that everyone who was enthusiastic about that would have picked and actually that's the awkward thing about democracy is if mm. you if you give people the right to choose who leads them well they might not choose who you think they should and they might not have the same values you know when it comes to things like human rights and the rule of law that you would have and and do you kind of prioritize democracy above all of those other things or do you then seek to use philanthropy to continue to be a tool to try and influence within those democratic uh countries it's you know and thereby kind of use it as a as a political tool um yeah it's gets very complicated very quickly yeah um, so i think we've done our job pretty effectively because i feel like even i'm not confident uh in my own opinion <laughs> yeah. anymore case closed <laughs> yeah. um but yeah so i mean i think this is you know something we're definitely going to come back to because we've touched on some pretty massive uh kind of issues that cut across a lot of, of philanthropy discussion here so you know don't don't worry listeners that if you're <laughs> totally confused we'll confuse you more in the future um but for now yeah it just uh remains to say thanks very much for listening this is episode four um got three of them out already seems to be going all right um if anybody you know has any thoughts or views on stuff we could be talking about what they think about we've already talked uh drop us a line at uh giving thoughts at cafonline.org. Um, as ever, we'll put up links to any kind of publications and blogs that we've written about the issues we've talked about today uh, in the show notes. Uh, and other than that, we'll tune in uh, next time. So see you all. Bye. Bye. Bye.